if there's a problem that can happen that can be solved by surgery, a plastic surgeon is curious about it. The average person down the street doesn't realize um, some of the neat things that, that go on uh, day in and day out. And one of the things that I really like about plastic surgery is the majority of it, or I don't know, we'll say 90% occurs with um, various techniques and tools in a tool, you know, either a literal or, or kind of a hypothetical toolbox. And it's about assembling them in a way to, to fix that problem. Welcome to You Can Do It, Do It, a podcast about people whose lives were transformed by trying something new. Chris Jaley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excited yeah. to have you. What do you do for a living? So I'm a fourth year plastic surgery resident at Brown's Plastic Surgery Program. Fantastic. And the goal is to finish that program and become a full-fledged plastic surgeon. That's right. Let's talk about how you got there. All right. Have you seen Grey's Anatomy? Yes. Yes. So there we go. We're done. Pack it up. Perfect. <laughs> is were that you, really are you, uh, McSteamy? Is that... uh, no, I'm. I, I I think I'm more of the Catherine Heigl character, though. So was it a TV show that sparked your interest in medicine? Um, no, no, I'm kind of kidding. <laughs> uh, Miami Vice wasn't uh, wasn't my interest in medicine. That was how I got to University of Miami. <laughs> um, yeah, it, seriously, it was it was an interest in that show that kind of. That got you into sparked, Miami? Sparked the, uh, oh, this, Miami's a place is a cool city, I could right? live there. Yeah, right. yeah. Full of and ice. so it's a really backwards way of doing things, and I don't recommend that. But um, I mean, when you're young, it's like it could take anything to get you into a place, right? You're just like, I like Miami Vice. Maybe I'll go to Miami. Yeah, like, I'll take a look at it. They got a good football team or something. Like right, that. right. But all jokes aside, like I, it did, it kind of sparked my interest in, in um, leaving Kansas City and just seeing... Um, what it would be like being in a different area of the country and, and just experience different things. Um, and everything I saw from that point kind of uh, fortified that idea. And I thought marine biology was a good way of saying, oh, that's something they don't have at KU. So hmm. I need to go down there, mom and dad. Ah. <laughs> now, did you know anyone down there or in a marine bio program before? I did not. So we, um, I got... I think it was like January or February or something like that, really bitterly cold um, when I got the, the letter uh, from them saying like, oh, you got in, you this is an opportunity. Um, and we went and visited the campus and then it's, it's all over from there. Like once I well, kind of made it real. Going from Kansas in February to Miami in February, yeah. I'm sure oh, it was a yeah. nice little change. Yeah. And like their, their marine biology program, um, they have their own like campus they have their own lab just filled with fish tanks and and it looks exactly like you would hope you know, there's nets hanging from the ceiling and sharks and everything that you can imagine so um you know when you're young you're just like oh, this is this is going to be amazing i'm going to be the next jacques Cousteau. and and for the and folks like me who never took a biology course is that is biology human biology or what's the, um, what's the, the typical focus of biology? Yeah, that's a good question. It depends. Um, the human biology is, I think, just a small part of it, especially even 
um, like the, you've got these big freshman weed out courses or you get just a big textbook and you spend actually more time on, you know, the concepts of evolution and just these ideas that I think are actually being taught pretty well in high school now and are part of, you know, most state, um, curriculums. Uh, but you know, it, it's, it's still kind of, uh, a bold idea to teach, you know, try to teach everybody in the United States, regardless of where they grew up about these ideas and, you know, how, how organisms change over time and, and just different stuff like that. And those are all interesting things to think of as a plastic surgeon, especially in surgery. We think a lot about infection and, and it's been kind of a, a pendulum of, you know, discovering germ theory and deciding that no germ should live and they're like you know the bastion of existence um to now saying oh on our skin and our in our gut we have organisms that are good we can't fight every single one we have to we have to leverage that that diversity improve health to avoid infections so those things so i think we're starting to get a, a little bit different appreciation from even you know 50 years ago didn't they find out recently that like the appendix actually can like replenish some of your like good bacteria in your body? Yeah. If you're like, if you've been really sick or if you had like too many antibiotics or something like they found, they were like, oh shoot, there is a reason for the appendix. I think the the new mature thought is we, to, to admit that we don't know exactly and to, to think something might actually be more important than it is. And certainly everything's, uh, you know, a weight of, of risks and benefits and if it's plugged up and, and going to pop and spread all those bacteria inside your belly right that's that's an example where it probably shouldn't shouldn't be in there so when you you know started wrapping up your marine biology program did you know at that point that you were going to be a doctor or was there something that kind of triggered for you it was kind of a confluence of things it was um, as i was wrapping up i graduated in 2010 um, and the, uh, job market in general was poor and the job market for, you know, government jobs. A lot of people go and work for NOAA or, um, they do research that, that entails, um, you know, grants that are often backed by government entities, uh, was poor. And I, I kind of, I was trying to fa figure out if, if I saw myself as a professor, so you go, to school for question mark amount of time to do your PhD and thesis and, and figure out what you want to apply your, you know, your, your mental resources towards for another, who knows how many years, four to eight year. I mean, it, people spend varied amount of times on that to then go teach people things or, um, whether I wanted to do something where, um, the the day to day was the lag time between putting your your energy into um that day manifest itself as as something you could see as a change and i i just think um my attention span was was more appropriate <laughs> for 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 immediate gratification mm -hmm. um i think that's something that really struck me about some of the the other interviews that you've done people took some just great risks that i think is just so impressive. And I don't feel like I ever took, you know, a, a leap like that. I think I jumped from 
location to location and, and jump into things and commit them. But it's, it's like a very calculated risk. And I feel kind of like mm. I'm cheating by being on the podcast because I haven't, <laughs> I haven't done that, that leap of faith quite yet. So maybe it's, maybe it's coming. Well, I, I think it was interesting that you said you commit to it. Cause I mean, being a doctor from my perspective, but it is, it's a huge commitment. I mean, of time, energy. I, I agree. It definitely takes up a lot of time. Um, and it's something that would be hard to, to fake. Like you, you really can't, right. you, if you don't like it, it, you burn out really quick. Mm -hmm. We talked in our, uh, a few weeks ago with Tino, who, uh, you know, is a fantastic designer and, and basically builds these design systems and toolkits now for these, these big companies that they work with as clients. And, you know, he started off as a graphic designer because it was really easy to get Photoshop. I remember him saying that. Yeah. The, the yeah. barrier to entry was, yeah. was a lot more favorable. And there's, there's, you know, so many professions now that are becoming more and more like that, but medicine feels like at least on a, on a fairly long timeline, even from now that it, certain aspects of it will continue to, you know, have that kind of risk, Sure. you know, and, and it is funny, you know, early on, like, oh, I don't like to take risks, but I mean, I'd argue that eight years of college education like, <laughs> yeah. is a pretty big risk when, when thinking about a, you know, a career. Yeah. And, first, when you, when you mentioned your four year or you're in, you're in your fourth year. So yeah. Fourth, yeah. Yeah. I was kind of like, wait, how young is he? Only four years. And I was like, Oh, right. Four years of med school. And then yeah, four years. Right. Yeah, and, and what, what on earth compelled you to say, like, I want to do four more years of this. Like what oh, was that? It's more than four you? more years. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> four four seven, more years of just like years? school. Yeah. Yeah. And now, yeah. Several years of residency. And yeah. Um, it's so yeah, it's, it's four years of college, four years of med school. This, most plastic surgery programs are six years and then a lot of people go on to do an extra year of fellowship. So, um, it's 13 years. Sure. 80 years. How many years is it's, that? Yeah, I can't it's, math. It'll be 2021 when I graduate from here. So I, I didn't get into medical school. My first, my first go around, I think, I, I think everything worked out a lot better because I didn't, um, I, I wasn't misguided. I just think I, I didn't know exactly how the process worked. I didn't have anyone close in my life who had really gone through it to give those, I think sometimes more targeted tips and tricks. Um, you know, when applying to med school, you should probably apply to, you know, everywhere, <laughs> not just like a couple you know, places. So, okay. um, and, uh, you know, how seriously should you take the entrance exam? And, you know, it's not an aptitude test. It's like, there are very specific questions you'll be asked in, it's not a secret. You should probably know the answer to them. So, um, so, so I, for better or worse, I, I didn't, for, for better, yeah, absolutely better. I didn't get in the, the first, um, first time I tried and I, I went back home to Kansas and, um, I worked full time for, uh, an asset management firm in their accounting department Jeez. and, uh, put that, you know, marine biology uh, education to work. Yeah. Um, promise it was worth it. Mom and dad. <laughs> They're like, it's okay. You're a doctor now. It's fine. Um, and, uh, that allowed me to volunteer at a hospital, get to see what it was like in a, a little bit more realistic, uh, way. Um, and I also got to go down to Honduras, um, for a medical mission. Um, and, that really solidified uh, what I had 
thought on the surface, which was healthcare is the place for me and where I should put my eggs. So, not in wealth management. <laughs> well, I was, I was, I was in the accounting uh, department, so it was more like um, implementing an electronic expense reporting package and mm. and fixed asset accounting and and real, you know exciting stuff not not you know your wolf of wall street stuff yeah. that's boring it's life-saving that's boring. in a way yeah i mean you need people to do it you talked about a great job going into accounting whether the numbers are black or red people need to know what they are and um i like how like positive you are about every profession it makes me feel like very happy like talking to you about things you're just like no listen like if you're listening right now and you're an accountant you mean something, and I thank you for your service. Well, it's, it, and I'm it's, not joking. I really do yeah. feel that's like great. It's too easy to get bummed out on things, right? Yeah. You know, it it's it's so much easier to complain about things because they're the the aggravations in life are so charismatic that um they they get an unfair amount of attention in our life. So I think focusing on you know things that people find boring, things that other people aren't paying attention to. I mean, that's the basis of 99% of podcasts out there, right? <laughs> the hidden truth of everything. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think that's, I think that's an important thing to be um, thinking about and conscientious of. So when I first learned you were a plastic surgeon, we talked about it a little bit. I, w I was actually kind of surprised at what it is to be a plastic surgeon. So what, what does a plastic surgeon do? That's one of my favorite kind of things to talk about. I think I'm glad that we were bringing that up because I think what people think it is. So other television shows that brought me to this point are Nip Tuck and Dr. <laughs> no, I figured Nip Tuck would be involved. It's going to be involved. It's, it's yeah. a lot less like that than I thought it would be. And <laughs> Dexter, but not in a creepy way. Not in a creepy yeah. way. Um, so I, I think love blood. <laughs> blood's beautiful. Actually, we can talk about blood a lot. Um, but can't okay <laughs> oh that's right uh, so got, yeah he Crazy can't do it thing. yeah so we'll we'll leave that out it's a special feature, and i have to so. edit it so i'll have to listen quite a few times yeah <laughs> we're gonna do it live oh yeah, yeah. Um, that's the trepidation oh. thing we're not doing trepidation we're yeah. experimenting on steve's psychology we'll do bloodletting that's one thing that <laughs> we, we got right the first time there are four humors and i steve that's has right. too much blood <laughs> they take just out the appendix just to get out some of the extra blood around it. Yeah, it really, it's a check valve for the blood. Um, <laughs> I think people imagine plastic surgery being the cosmetic surgery um, on botched, on, you know, a variety of, of programs. It's something that in the last 10 years has lost a lot of stigma. It's captivating, um, but it's only a small you know, but important portion of, of what plastic surgeons do day in and day out. Um, I personally want to go do hand surgery. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't realize that, uh, to become a hand surgeon, you can either go through orthopedics or plastic surgery. Hmm. And so that's a huge chunk that I think people are not aware of. And a lot of hand surgery is re restoration of function. It's not you know, it's not all hand models all day. Um, <laughs> Is it ever hand models? No. Okay. Not, not yet. We shave off the outer layer of skin and you... <laughs> well, they're, they actually are. They're doing... Some, not necessarily the outer layer of skin. Sure. They do hand rejuvenation now through fat uh, injections. Okay. 
Um, but but plastic surgery it doesn't have um, doesn't have a, a gender like obstetrics and gynecology does. It doesn't have an age group like pediatrics does. It doesn't have a specific body system. It's really it's everything um, head to toe, and and a lot of it is uh, based on functionality and restoration of functionality. Um, they're very collaborative. A lot of their surgeries are done in conjunction with you know, either neurosurgery to um, close a scalp after a large you know, defect has to be created in the in the skull um, for you know a variety of reasons. Um, it's restoration of a function of limbs. We kind of touched upon um, nerves. It's uh, a lot of reconstruction after breast cancer. So that's a, a very large portion of what plastic surgeons do. If a woman chooses to do reconstruction after after a mastectomy or a lumpectomy, in in our country, it's it's mandated to be covered by insurance. It was part of the Women in Cancer Act. So I mean, there, there's an example of of top down, um, you know, legislation that's changed our our healthcare system in a very positive way. And I think we're starting to appreciate a lot of the mental health that comes along with with the restoration of form and how that is also part of restoration of function um what else um we do at Rhode Island Hospital we see a lot of uh, trauma and particularly craniofacial trauma so uh, the folks who either get into a motorcycle accident or what have you um who break bones in their face who have large soft tissue um trauma or, or or defects or lacerations they they require um kind of a, a different approach that that requires the the surgeon to be comfortable taking care of bones and nerves and muscles and skin um because it would be very hard to assemble you know a full team of you know oh, i'm just going to do the bone i'm just going to do the this part so um so it it's a restoration of form and function there uh, a lot of innovations in the medical world were done by plastic surgeons like the first kidney transplant was a plastic surgeon i think a lot of that comes from an appreciation of you know basic science and anatomy and and understanding um rejection at a cellular level there's just i, I think and i'm very biased but i think there's a there's a, an appreciation for um the body as a whole and there's um it's very important to think broadly and not not be too um, focused on a, a specific you know system or age or or something like that so i think if there's a if there's a problem that can happen that can be solved by surgery a plastic surgeon is curious about it the average person down the street doesn't realize um, some of the neat things that, that go on uh, day in and day out. And one of the things that I really like about plastic surgery is the majority of it, or I don't know, we'll say 90%, occurs with um, various techniques and tools in a tool, you know, either a literal or, or kind of a hypothetical toolbox. And it's about assembling them in a way to to fix that problem um, for example you know you you have somebody who has a skin cancer that's cut out and if you put a picture of it on 
you know, a slide and, and show five plastic surgeons in a room, you might get five different answers with how they want to, to close it, what different patterns of, of cuts to make in the skin to fold, fold the skin over to, to close it. And a lot of these techniques are just done with very simple tools, you know, just different stitches and, and blades. It doesn't require a million dollar special imaging device. It doesn't require a lot of things that some some specialties have come to rely on. And I think that there's some elegance to that. Um, uh, moreover, I think there's a pressure to reconstruct the body using one's own tissue, mm -hmm. which is appreciated, I think, by plastic surgeons as much as anybody. Um, and try to, trying to avoid, there's this pressure to try to avoid implanted materials. Um, that said, I think plastic surgeons also have historically been very comfortable with developing and using implanted materials as well, whether it's for reconstruction of bone or soft tissue or something like that. So um, I like the the idea of it being very generalized and and taking what you saw on a scalp and applying it to an arm or, you know, and not, not being so focused on these are the 10 steps to take out a gallbladder. This is the, the 10 steps to put something together or take something out or do this. It's okay. Very results. Re, yeah, it's dynamic and it's very results-based. There's more than one way to get to the goal. So. Because you operate on so many, uh, pretty much, I guess, on the entire body, no. depending on what you need to do, I guess that forces you to understand more right I, it's it's kind of like whatever you do there's there's you know there's a breadth of of knowledge and depth of knowledge and i think there's a, a real focus on being able to appreciate like the breadth of what you need to know but also understand once you've you have to address the specific problem in the in the vast breadth of problems um zooming in and saying, how can I leverage these medical journals? How can I gain the, the appropriate depth of knowledge in there um, now that I need to take care of that problem? Being able to zoom in and out um, ad hoc, I think, is is something that um, is rewarded in, in plastic surgery and something that's now possible with just the copious and instant availability of of medical journals, of of information, and, and we're sharing information um, between countries and between institutions in a way that's that's not been done in the past. So I think it's a great time to be a plastic surgeon as well. Is plastic surgery a more modern medical discipline? So traditionally, um, there wasn't a you you didn't leave medical school going into a six-year plastic surgery program, you would start with general surgery or orthopedics or ENT. You'd, you'd do a residency in um, something else and then do a second residency in plastic surgery. And they've, they've combined them. And I think there's some merits to that. I think as general surgery has become more focused on providing minimally invasive abdominal surgery, um, there, there are certainly broad skills that are that are transferable but uh, i think a, a system now where where you can spend more time in the educational environment doing the the surgeries and the cases that are that are more apt to plastic surgeons is 
is better, but traditionally you would you would do a full residency and and usually general surgery first. And before that, it was not its own resident. I mean, if you go way back, it was just general surgeons who were doing these type of things. So it's changed over time. Uh, it's interesting. You mentioned Grey's Anatomy earlier, and I think um, before I ever watched Grey's Anatomy, and I'm sure it's horribly inaccurate in many ways. That's whatever. exactly right. It's perfect. It's, it's exactly bit, uh, right. You can stand on the roof and see the ferry boats in any hospital anywhere in the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was, I think it was the first time I ever saw plastic surgery as being something other than like, I, you know, I thought of it as being cosmetic and yeah. I was much younger when that show first came yeah. out, obviously. So maybe just growing up, I would have been like, Oh, okay. Yeah. It's more than that. But like, yeah, it was like, yeah, plastic surgery. They give people big boobs and they yeah. give them nose jobs and stuff like that. But they were, doing things on the show that were like really meaningful to people and helping them recover from burns and like accidents and you know and it was interesting that you were mentioning there's a lot of plastics that's, that focuses on uh actual function which i didn't even even after having watched that didn't really think about like hand surgery specifically being like a specialty yeah. of plastics and stuff like that so is that did you know like the depth of plastics before you went into it or is that something you learned? I did not. I did. I, um, I think that was one of the things that drew me to it in medical school because, you know, similar, I think part of the reason why everybody thinks about the cosmetic aspects of, of plastic surgery is, um, not only is it very charismatic, but it, it's something that can be digested quickly and is fairly easy to, to understand. I think some of the most interesting things that we're doing, particularly like at Rhode Island Hospital and and places where they have um, kind of a tertiary care center, a place where some of the more difficult problems are going. Um, it's very hard in a in a quick, you know, even a you know forty five minute television program or something to really convey how cool these these things are. Um, and it's it's just more nuanced. Um, for example, we it was this was a very cool case. This kind of brings in a bunch of elements that we've been talking about. It was a, a young girl um, who who was in a, a motor vehicle accident and had broken a couple bones in her face, but most importantly, uh, the bone that holds up your your eyeball. And um, this bone, if it if it breaks, your eye can you know kind of drop both in and down and not only cause, you know, uh, a cosmetic kind of issue by, by looking sunken in, but a, a functional issue where you get double vision. And this girl's very young, like under 10. And um, that comes with it challenges as well. So we had to figure out um, a way to reconstruct this to provide, you know, form and function. So you're having to work in kind of four dimensions um not only is there a, a true three-dimensional space that you have to fill with something but you have to imagine how it's going to work over time so uh, the traditional way to fix something like this is by putting in a metal implant so any adult would get it's called an orbital floor fracture and so you put in this plate that keeps the eyeball up they can see they don't even think about it the rest of their life but she she had a large defect and somebody who's going to continue to grow probably shouldn't have a piece of titanium in there that might affect, you know, as the bones continue to grow in a, in a more meaningful way. Like the bones are going to grow quite a bit compared to an adult. 
how is that going to change over time? So they do make absorbable plates for head and neck reconstruction. And they do make absorbable plates for craniofacial reconstruction. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure if they've ever been used exactly like this. We have, you know, a CT scan of her, of her, you know, craniofacial skeleton and we built an idealized, you know, left-sided orbit, which is the hole that the eyeball goes in based on the right side, which was, which was intact and fine. Um, then we were able to actually print that out on, on our 3d printer that we have, um, and sterilize that model in the operating room and use that kind of idealized um, shape from the, the other side to to make this absorbable plate that would fit fit in the uh, the contralateral side on the left side. And so we did that. And as far as we know, it's uh, it, it provided her the, the shape and the function that she's going to need to have good vision. But it's one of those examples where, you know, time will tell. So see but i mean that brings in the different the different elements yeah form and function and mm-hmm. the look of it and that's and amazing that, that's cool i mean that's it's got all super the, cool it's got I all the really buzzwords like, that you're looking for 3d and printing and you know don't young kids excited let them talk about it no and no but like it, oh my gosh that that's that's the cool stuff that yeah. if i could have everybody see mm. those those cases i mean i get so much pride in our in our program when when we have visiting students from other other hospitals who are like looking for where they where they want to do residency and we can show them a week of cases where they see something like that and then they see maybe a, a nerve transfer um, or a tendon transfer and then then they see you know some a case where somebody had been um, either they've had multiple operations or they've had cancer or for whatever reason they they've been they've reached this spot where either their breasts or their abdomen or something is is um so troublesome to them that they're not you know going out they're not you know they're not doing things they just they they have a problem that they would like to have solved and we can can solve that and they can see that all in one week in one place all done by the same specialty and that's i think just amazing even aside from being cool i mean it's got to be immensely rewarding to like a 10-year-old child who is going to have a lot of, I mean, just a function aside also just, I mean, kids are mean and like, you just feel sure. uncomfortable with yourself and sure. you've given her a chance to, I don't know, feel, feel okay. Like yeah. Feel normal among her friends and at school and everything. So it's yeah, incredible. Like, ideally if, if, if a plastic surgeon, you know, again, ideally boiled down, if they do their job, right. The person never even thinks about us, you know, right. it's, it's, they don't think about the fact that they had this, car crash they don't think about the the fact that they've got a plate in their face or they don't ever think about it. it's just like a distant memory kind of thing that's what we like that's you know it's what you strive for yeah what is a, a system that you would change if uh if, if you had the power to just pull a bunch of levers and do it yeah um i mean you alluded to it earlier our our payer system in this country for healthcare is is convoluted and and really difficult to navigate um it's difficult to navigate for you know i interface with it every day and i don't understand it um especially up here in the northeast where states um provide a lot of uh support for insurance systems or hospital systems you know 
and it's a state by state. Different states have different um, changes that they've implemented for prescribing patterns. They've got uh, state-backed insurances, and and when states are the size of you know postage stamps, it it makes it really difficult because they don't follow the same you know geographic barriers as as patients move you know so for example if you if you break your jaw south of brockton they'll take you straight to rhode island hospital um and your insurance might not pay for you to get that surgery done in rhode island so you know you have to stay in the hospital because then it's an emergency and it's weird things that shouldn't affect decision making medical decision making because it should be this problem should be addressed the same way but you have like you can either say well i'm going to ignore that aspect of it and just practice like i should in a very idealized world and that's not good for patients because then they you know you say all right we'll see you see you in a week we'll fix the jaw and their insurance company will say no you're not and then you you've not adequately taken care of that person so um yeah, I think that's that's one example. If I could pull some levers, that would be would be important. And I, I'm sure that's born across multiple, you know, facets of healthcare where it should just be, you know, how am I gonna take care of this person if they were my own family member, like brother or sister, how can we make that that happen and, and why is it so convoluted? I think some of the changes that will that will help people and that won't bankrupt our system are going to have to be at, at a higher level. And obviously I, I don't have the, the answer to that. I think that's a very complicated question and it, um, you can look to other countries to figure out some, some ideas that we could borrow from, but no, nobody has it figured out perfectly. And, and there are a lot of cultural things that go into it. Um, and a lot of ethical issues that could be brought up um, when designing that. So it, it's a very immensely, complicated problem that that i hope you know, the bar's low we're, we're very inefficient right now <laughs> we're doing it so bad just Oops. do a little bit you know, so so to put it in perspective about a fifth of our our gdp is goes to healthcare healthcare related expenses and i think there was one year during the cold war where any like single industry had you know, greater than than twenty percent of our GDP going to it, and it's obviously you know, military spending. But, um, and and we're doing this every single year, so it's unprecedented. It's interesting that I never really thought of certain parts of medicine being better at being cost effective. Like you mentioned, plastics. Like there was a lot of time where a lot of it was done outside of insurance, or at least most of it wasn't covered. And so it's almost like they got they learned how to be more cost effective. Yeah. And, and I guess like other areas are maybe just more complacent because it's usually just covered. So it's like, whatever, like, we'll just put this through and. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 everything comes down to incentives. Right. And if, if somebody is having something done for purely cosmetic reasons, you know, it's traditionally not covered by an insurer. And so it in some ways becomes commoditized and, and there has to be, um, you know, a barrier. To entry that that's attainable by you know, at least a large enough group of people that that it becomes a sustainable um hmm. you know 
commodity. I mean, I, I hate boiling it down to a commodity. We're like really dumbing it down because sure. um, we're lucky that we that we live in a country where, you know, particularly in the operating room, we have really high standards that need to be followed to to be accredited and that have made it you know very safe a very safe place to to receive medical care. But um, you know, if if you don't have all these moving targets as far as how much it costs to put that person in the room, to have the people in the room that are going to deliver the the care, and even just the the products themselves and what gets opened and what gets thrown away and how it's charged the patient or the insurer, um, it simplifies some things and and there just has to be a um, a race to a, a more cost effective um, goal. Like I said, there there's so much room for improvement that. I try to look at it very optimistically because, you know, if you're given a problem and, and everybody agrees that there are so many areas that need to be improved, you know, that's what a wonderful time to be in that industry. Like you can, <laughs> yeah. you know, at, at a very basic level say, all right, I want to make improvements not only to the lives of the people that we're taking care of, but like, how can we make this sustainable? How can we, how can we improve this? So, But sort of getting to that, is there like, in terms of asking, you know, where where does the responsibility lie for changing and and kind of solving a lot of these problems? Does it rely on medical consumers? Is it a policy thing? Is it on physicians and doctors? Like, is it on the hospital staff and administrators or the primary care physician? Like, where? Yeah, where does that responsibility? Who shoulders that burden? Yeah, because I mean, it, it's something where we all look at it and we're like, boy, this this could be better. And I know you know, a physician's time is spent caring for their patients. Like primarily that's where your mental energy wants to be. I, I think that it, it lies on everybody. I don't think patients should, or you know, people, I don't think the end user necessarily um, should be shouldering the burden of figuring out how, how to navigate this complicated system in a way that makes it more efficient in the future. You know, so saying, you know, for example, okay, well, a patient keeps going to the doctor and they need to be asking to be put on whatever the most cost-effective you know, care plan is so that everyone in the future has enough money to pay for everyone else who has high blood pressure in the future. I, th I think that's that's a little ridiculous to think it would be bottom-up like that. But I think similarly, um, having a policymaker who is either you know, at at best familiar with it from being in it but maybe um not not versed enough to know how one sweeping change is going to improve things for everybody or at worst not involved in it at all and and maybe making changes that are um, misguided or misinformed doesn't work either. So, so there's certainly a, um, a very collaborative, multidisciplinary approach to it, um, which is like the worst, most non-answer ever. I think it's kind of a universal rule that no matter how good your healthcare system is, you will still complain about it. Like oh, that's yeah. that's part of yeah. it. I think it's <laughs> yeah. But there has to be a, an acceptable level of complaint. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Um, and I, I think something that's very frustrating in any in any sense is having the same problem 
for years. Maybe this is just my, you know, short attention span thing, but the same (laughs) problem year after year and complaining about it and the problem not, you know, improving. Like I'm all for having the same number of problems in my life or the same number of problems as a society, but they should be changing. So how have you seen yourself change for the better as a result of the profession that you've chosen? I think the biggest change I've seen that I've noticed in myself, and this is something I think has happened in the last year, and I'm sure we're all evolving all the time and changing, but something that I've I've focused on that just kind of randomly I thought about was that when I go to see somebody, I the way that I my decision making process has changed has gone from, oh here's here's the problem they've shown up with this cut or they've shown up with this problem. What does the book say is the recipe to fix this? To this person has made their way to the emergency room um, tonight because of this accident or this this issue how if they were my family member if they were my brother or sister would i handle this and i think that's made the decision making process um more clear it's gone from a recipe to a more real more holistic kind of decision making process and and then it's easier when you get down there um to just talk to that person and i mean i i think what happened was i said it once and then i thought like oh that's pretty good every once in a while i can (laughs) i'm right no um (laughs) but it's true i mean people are very vulnerable when they're in the emergency room they're either there because they've you know they've had an accident they've either done something stupid or something was done to them and it wasn't their choice they're not where they feel comfortable they're where i feel comfortable and you know that doesn't give them a lot of room to say oh i don't think we should do this or why don't we do this and yet we ask so much of medicine to be patient centered now and like we we give them a laundry list of different things we could do mm. but if you just say listen you know if you were my brother and sister i think that this is a reasonable course of action from you know what you've told me about your goals you want you want this to look a certain way or you just want to get back to work as quick as possible whatever it is that their goal is i think this is this is a reasonable way to do it i think that was something that that's really changed uh for the better and that's something that i try to impart on like our other residents or just really anybody that it's just like for me it was a magical way of thinking and it makes things easier for me too so it's like a double win it's kind of a good way of just living your life i think actually (laughs) just thinking of any interaction like if this person wasn't some stranger how would i i don't know yeah i i personally find it more useful than like you know treating others the way you would like to be treated because that's complicated yeah i think there's a lot of bias when you start talking about yourself and not always for the better Mm. um there's always an element of feeling you know jaded or there's like a different kind of well, you know, if I was in an accident like this, I'd want you to pull the plug or, you know, Mm. there's just a different way of thinking when you're thinking about them as your brother or sister that you don't get when you're like, oh, if it were me or my hand or something like that, because it's different. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's awesome. Chris Chaley. Chris Chaley. You're a plastic surgeon. That's right. 
Thanks for listening to You Can Do It, Do It This Week with Chris Jaley. If you want to learn more about Chris and what he's up to, you can visit our website at youcandoitdoit.com. Thanks again to Night Swim for providing their song Fiji as the theme song for this show. You can find their music on iTunes and Spotify and wherever great music is found. Also, thank you again for listening. We really appreciate it. And if you wouldn't mind dropping us a review on iTunes, it really helps other people find our show. And you know what actually really, really helps is locking a friend in your car and having them listen on a long drive to somewhere. So go ahead and do that. Thanks. Bye.